Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where each week we speak to pharma company owners and industry leaders sharing their stories of personal and professional growth. This week, I am joined by Jonathan Bringas, uh, and as always, my co-host, Adam Walker. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Uh, I know that you're involved in quite a few things these days, so um, look, I'll let you give a quick introduction as to who you are, the companies you're involved in, and a quick summary of, of what you do. Thank you, James. So yes, um, my name is Jonathan, it's just as you said it. Um, I'm a medical doctor, uh, originally from Peru, and I'm a migrant here in the Netherlands. Um, I've been recertified a couple of times in different countries. Um, and um, I work here already for some time. I, I work in the medical technology industry. So I would say I'm a digital health advisor. I'm, I'm working with different companies in, in terms of implementation of digital health, uh, choosing the right functionality or targeting pathologies with that where digital health would give the biggest impact mm-hmm. um, and feasibility. And I'm also working, uh, I'm, I'm the co-founder and uh, chief executive officer of a digital therapeutics company called Flapsy Health in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also a medical education strategist uh, working currently with Medscape, uh, but I'm also in the board of uh, other companies that do medical education like Consulta, which is a Latin American one, or Joy, Medical Joyworks, etc. Wow. Yeah. Quite a bit there, isn't there, Adam, to, to unpack? Well, it, it's amazing. Jonathan is one of the busiest guys that I know, and him and I came into contact, uh, I think, about a year ago, wasn't it, Jonathan, when we first connected? And it was yes. around mentorship, funnily enough, and, and we had some, some very interesting and have had some continuing ongoing conversations, and I was very interested, and I think our listeners would be very interested to hear your backstory around that particular piece as well, Jonathan. So I have a really big, deep connection with mentorship. And that's something that um, I always talk about, especially when we get to meet, you know, one-on-one like you and me did. Yeah. Um, because when I, so, I, you know, I come from Peru and in Peru, when I was, when I was uh, 14 years old, was a country that was just coming back from an era of terrorism and um, dictatorship. And we were just starting to become a democratic country. So Many things were changing, but still we were a poor country. There were not really a lot of opportunities. And when you were a kid being born and raised in a country like that, uh, with the, the, the current situations that we were living, you didn't really have a very big perspective of yourself. You know, you were thinking, well, you know, where am I gonna go with this? Um, what am I gonna study? And what was my real future? And you were always very realistic, even pessimistic. And, um, but I got the really great chance to go to the Intel ISAF, which is the International Science and Engineering Fair in the United States, in Cleveland. And um, I was like kind of like added to the group of the nerds. I was really not the nerd that was developing anything, but I was like, you know, I'm always there. You know, I'm always in the last in the bus. I'm just getting in. Like, I got to get in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I guess that's, my, that's my, my intelligence probably, you know, just finding the moment that I just have to get in the bus. And I, and I went there um, and um, one of the people that I met in there, there was a jury for the entire um, uh, ISEF. And if you Google it, you're gonna see even a documentary and it's like a massive competition between high school nerds from around the world. Uh, and, and I was like, I was a semi-nerd. And, um, and I met this guy and uh, he was the jury and I found him so inspiring. Uh, his name is Richard Roberts and he's a Nobel, a Nobel Prize laureate from 1993 in medicine. And he was telling his story about, he was actually British, how he was born in the UK and um, not in London or in one of the big cities. And he went to university very far from, you know, the big, big universities from the UK. And still he made it, uh, he said it was all about 
he wanted always to be a detective. So his father taught him to uh, always look for the clues uh, to solve the puzzles. And that's exactly what he did with biology. And eventually he is the one that discovered uh, gene splicing, which is the massive uh, industry usage for many things, including, uh, I would say, uh, an evolution of that is probably what we are seeing now with the vaccines, you know? So it's really incredible, his, the impact of his job, of his work. And um, so he won the Nobel Prize. And then I went to him and I was like, well, I would like to know, you know more about you. Can I have your email address? And uh, he says, yeah, this is my email address. He wrote it down on a paper, gave it to me, and uh, he went away. And that was the only interaction we had. And I was thinking, what are the chances you know, that a Nobel Prize that is also the head of a lab in, in, in the US will actually reply to my emails? But you know what, let's just do it. So I uh, went back through and I wrote him an email and um, I think it wasn't even a day. And then I had an email in my inbox. And you know, it was like, for me, it was like magic. It was incredible. And he's the one that really helped me to um, identify opportunities. He wrote me a, a recommendation letter, something that many people just don't do. They just don't want to do it. Um, or they don't think that, um, you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's something that people sometimes in professionals are very scared of doing, which is mm -hmm. just, giving a person a hand and um and he did it and he helped me he coached me sent me emails and we, we've been reciprocating each other's emails for a long time and um, eventually i graduated as a medical doctor i specialized i moved to the netherlands i work in medical technology and until now we still see each other on video you know now and then and um, i'm going to be actually having him uh, on LinkedIn live uh to have a conversation uh, about medical innovation um you know maybe in a couple of months that's wonderful that's wonderful and you've known him for what 20 20 odd years now yes because i think you're a youngster aren't you <laughs> a little bit younger than me <laughs> i am i am almost 35 that's an amazing story and i, I followed i followed that with, with some interest on linkedin and um as i say you, you and i had some connection around mentorship because i'm also mentoring um uh, a young man called Anthony from Ecuador, who I actually met last week for the first time in person in London. And wow. uh, that was quite, quite the experience as well. So I really do um, identify, identify really, really heavily with that. But um, anyway, thank you for sharing that story. It's a tremendous story. And, and I think it just gives, gives a little bit of background to the, the human behind um, the titles and the activities that you're actively pursuing so, so well. Mm. And I think it just goes to show that Actually, if you do just reach out to people and ask, often you might be surprised that you will get a positive response because I think that as you acquire more experience, more life skills, etc., and you're in a position to, to give advice and, and be, act as a mentor, you actually quite appreciate the fact that someone has reached out to you. So I'm sure you know that's why you guys are now in a position to, to do that. And if someone reaches out for support and help, no doubt you'll be doing exactly the same as... Um, well you know, what Richard had to, to, for you, Jonathan. That's exactly what Jonathan did for, for, for my mentee, Anthony, in fact. So I put them together mm. and I, I know they had an incredible conversation. Anthony was absolutely raving about the conversation you had, Jonathan. And it, it really inspired him as well as, as someone coming from Latin America and succeeding in the UK and in Europe, you know, completely out of um, cultural comfort, really, I would say. So you know, I really, really appreciated you you reaching out and, and taking that opportunity as well. So thank you. 
No, thank you. And, and I think that's what, what you guys are saying is true. Um, if you see the, the most successful people in, in, in business, in healthcare, in pretty much any, any uh, space that you would find professionally, they tend to be very humble and they tend to be very appreciative for um, mentorship. They really love to do that. I guess because you can't be that successful if you haven't had a mentor. I think it, that relationship of, of mentorship, uh, mentee, mentor, and understanding uh, more complexities than just what comes in your career or in your professional title, you know, because the mentor doesn't really just give you knowledge, gives you experience. They give you, you know, uh, life experience even. How do you deal with work and life? How do you deal with uh, these types of situations in, in, at university or um, all those things that you might not be really prepared for and that they're not going to teach you in, in the formal education? They give it to you. You, you can't buy that wisdom. That's the point, isn't yep. it? And, and, and often when you're having those conversations with your mentee, it can be a, you know, a, a very flippant, a flippant comment that actually can have really, really resonate very strongly with, with the individual. And um, as I say, if we all knew what we, if we all knew what we what we knew in, in our 20s uh, and took that wisdom backwards, we, we'd probably have made very different decisions and certainly be very different people. But I think to your point about the humility, you know, it, it's absolutely in so many people that I come across and certainly that we've interviewed on the pod as well, I would say, James, wouldn't you? Mm, definitely. I mean, what I'm, I'm thinking here, um, Jonathan, is, I mean, how was that? Uh, for you back then so since then there's been a lot of change I mean you mentioned about five countries um, just in one sentence there um, so you were originally from Peru um, you got on this course um, with the nerds as, as you ter term them <laughs> um, and then it, it went well but then when did the, the, the travel and the overseas um, yeah, business and, and digital health where did that come from how did you first end up getting into it and just talk us through that journey of, of moving countries because you know that's always an interesting one for me particularly I mean was was English uh did you speak English was it your first language you know I, I'm assuming not but give us a quick insight into that no no it's not my first language so I um yeah so I was I was constantly traveling and I was always going to the U.S. for several reasons and um I guess television and um, just being there and, and, and in Peru, uh, it just helps you to de de develop your languages. Um, but I basically, I went to study in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. uh, in Cuba, to, uh, to be precise. And, um, and when I finished my medical uh, degree, I went back to Peru and I had to recertify in Peru because, you know, as, as it is uh, common in, in a medical practice, you don't really have a universal registration Every time you move from country to country, even if they speak the same language, you always have to recertify. In some, in some countries, even their state or province, like for instance, in Spain, you know, uh, you move from the Valencian community to the uh, Catalonia and you have to <laughs> recertify in a degree. So um, I moved to Peru, I had to recertify. And, um, and in Peru, I uh, used to work uh, as a volunteer doctor in, in several projects on NGOs and the, one of those I met, uh, the one that is right now my wife, um, which is uh, Diana and she's a medical doctor as well, a PhD. And um, she's from the Netherlands. So she told me, you know, we should move to the Netherlands. Like, um, let's do it. So in preparation to that, I recertified in Spain. Um, so I did the entire process again, certified in Spain, just because it was, it's like a sport now, you know? <laughs> I didn't want to do it again. And I recertified in Spain and then we moved to the Netherlands. And when I checked in the Netherlands, they said, well, you have to recertify again here as well because we need to know that you speak the language. 
So I had to learn Dutch and then, you know, why not? Let's recertify one more time. So um, by then I've already been recertifying, you know, it was just basically a common practice. And, um, and when I was here in the Netherlands, it takes time because it's really a lot of uh, exams. People don't know this, but it's actually longer than the USMLE. So um, that means that you have to do exams of medical Dutch, you have to do legal medicine, you have to do basic sciences, and then you have to do the medical part and a practical part and an interview. It's, wow. it's really crazy. So while I was doing that, I, I told myself, okay, well, I am a medical doctor. I'm already recertified in Europe. I'm recertified in South America and in the Caribbean. So technically, I think I can say I'm well prepared for this. Let's, let's see what there is where I can work until I get my certification here in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And this is how I came across with uh, medical technology. I entered a company on hematology and I started from the beginning, you know, from the bottom, let's, let's call it. So uh, doing the sales part and as, as an assistant uh, and then medical advisor. And then I went uh, to another company and I was a business developer. Uh, so I went into, I, I've done recruitment for, for life sciences as well. And, um, and at that point I was more in the business development part. Somebody told me you have something for business development. I had no idea what that means, business development. So I was like, I don't know what this means. I might as well do it. Let's do it. So I jumped to this, uh, job and, and I started to become a, a business developer on, on recruitment for life sciences. And then I went to another company that was uh, developing uh, genetical varieties of seeds and they needed a person that understands life sciences. Uh, and I was like, mm, you know, this is not my, my, uh, my cup of tea, but it's a really well position, really well versed position. You're going to travel the world. It's really interesting, the, the market. And it's actually genetics, which is something that always, I always liked. So I was like, you know what, let's give it a try. So I went there. And I was, uh, I was an international sales manager and I traveled all over the world. So I've been in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in India, you know, all over Latin America, Europe, um, Angola, Mozambique. And, um, and after that, uh, it was time I, for me to go back to the medical technology. So I, um, I went back to medical devices in cardiology and then cardiac rehabilitation. I became a medical director and then I became a chief medical officer of a wearables company. And then I focused on digital health. I went, uh, I, I did a course in Imperial College of Digital Health and I focused my, my entire, and you know what, the pandemic happened. Um, and when the pandemic happened, then suddenly what I was focusing on became the hottest thing in the, in the business. So uh, from that moment, basically the people that knew about digital health from before, we had a really interesting position at that point because we understood all that stuff. You know, somebody told me like, we want to do remote patient monitoring. I know what that is and I know how to do it. I know that there's not a lot of hospitals that do it, but they probably they might as well do it very soon because of the COVID. And, um, and it's unraveled to the point where digital health is right now, which is you've seen this, the, the, the amounts of investment that happened uh, until now, 2021 Q3, which is historic on digital health. And of course, the people that are working my side uh, that, that were already experts from the beginning, uh, we are just really enjoying this, let's call it a blue ocean of opportunities in digital health. Wow. There's huge times at the moment, Adam, for that side of uh, things, isn't it? So much resonates. As, as I say, you know, from, from, from the get-go, when, when I first 
came into contact with Jonathan, the enthusiasm and the energy with which you speak, Jonathan, is incredible. But also your backstory is so unlike anyone else's. You know, you are so qualified and so capable on so many different levels. You could probably hold about 100 different positions in multiple languages in multiple locations and you know that i think sets you apart from many any in any case never mind how you got to this point um but your energy is extraordinary and it comes through in everything that you say and uh you know i really really appreciate you sharing that <laughs> the breadth the breadth of um of experience and background that you've, you've had to come into this industry and i think you're so well set to do the things that you're doing right now you know, as you say, it is absolutely the golden time, isn't it, for digital health? Yes, it is. Well, yes. I think just to, to add to that, I guess, look, the recertifications, the, the relearning of, of languages, um, I mean, having to, to learn something the first time is, is tough enough. Having to then do it again over and over with probably different nuances, what, I guess, what sort of habits tips tricks would you have for anyone else who is perhaps thinking of of this sort of route or considering overseas travel uh, and having to relearn uh, new languages what what advice would you give to them almost you know as a as a mentor because you can't learn that experience so what what would you say is there any particular habits that helped with it or tips and tricks i i would say first of all don't do it several times <laughs> it's a mistake don't um, <laughs> but you know the, the thing is that I, I i joke right now and i'm i'm actually pretty comfortable in the position where i am but you had to see me when i was doing it you mm -hmm. know I, I was in the in the verge of burning out because it's really a lot of work and it's oh it's a lot of as you said a lot of new nuances because you come from a country let's say you you learned medicine in in the caribbean and Epidemiology is completely different than the one that you see in South America. So while in the Caribbean, you're gonna have a lot of malaria and dengue and um, leishmaniasis. Leishmaniasis is a very typical parasitic uh, disease in the Caribbean. You won't see it very much in the center coastal area of South America. So what you will see there is more tuberculosis. And um, so you have to like reshape a little bit your epidemiological knowledge to whatever fits in the, in the next region where you're going. And then you go and you recertify in Spain and tuberculosis is no longer a problem, but Lyme's disease is. So, okay, now I have to study Lyme's disease because they have a different epidemiology, they have other problems. And then you go to the Netherlands and in the Netherlands, the problems are chronic diseases, chronic management. So here in the Netherlands, the biggest problems are hypertension, diabetes, you know, stroke. Okay, well, then we have to change and everything again. Also, the way they do, they perform medicine is completely different. While in Latin America, you have to be very empathetic to patients' pain. And um, uh, maybe even, let's say, a little bit parenting. In, um, in Spain, you have to be a little bit less parenting, but still empathetic. And in the Netherlands, you have to be uh, mostly transactional. Uh, you know, so, and it sounds very bad, but actually... The patients expect it as well. So it's not bad because the patients in the Netherlands, they are not the typical patient from the Latin America. So they are like, I have pain, but I don't want to go to the doctor. I'm going to go to the doctor whenever my pain is unbearable. And then they get into the ER and they are like, hey, doctor, I have pain and it's unbearable. And they're mm -hmm. just talking to you. So it's like, it's a different way of performing medicine. Everything from the communication to, the, to, to really doing the diagnostics and, and, and then giving treatment. 
Um, so I would say uh, for a doctor that doesn't have to do it, don't do it. If you really have to do it and you have to move to another country, I would recommend you to look for doctors or foreign doctors that have recertified. Make a little circle of friends that you can get advice from. Every country is different, so I can't really tell you, you know, unless you're going to Spain or the Netherlands. And, um, and the most important thing about when learning a language is don't put yourself so much pressure. Try to do it from the most common things in life, um, from TV, from the newspaper, from the radio. You know, just put yourself in contact with the language, not really put yourself, uh, push yourself to really learn it on paper from the beginning, but put yourself in contact with it. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I, I started listening to the radio, watching television, uh, reading the newspaper in Dutch, um, trying to get there and there, you know, some information and, um, and really putting myself in contact with it. At some point it just clicks and um, that's what happened. Good advice. And I think, yeah, certainly very relevant. And um, as you say, not everyone is going to have to do it. However, there's always going to be women in our lives as, as men um, and they will take us places sometimes that we just don't know about. So um, yeah, good advice to, to give there, Jonathan, I think. It's amazing. It's amazing. And funnily enough, I have a very good friend who also moved to the Netherlands about 20 years ago uh, from the UK. He, he is completely um, conversant in, in Dutch, but also he married a Polish girl. So he's got two kids and at home they speak three languages. So they speak English, Dutch and Polish. Wow. So they have also a very multilingual, multicultural home life as well. And, and, and I think the Netherlands is a, is a very welcoming and open uh, country for, for that type of experience, isn't it, Jonathan? Definitely. It's one of the most cosmopolitan countries I've ever been. Um, very accepting. Uh, I mean, I can't complain about the Netherlands. They have really accepted me in, in a way that I don't think Peru would accept foreigners. Um, you know, just giving you the keys, let's say, to the business, um, so to speak, and to a person that you might not 100% understand culturally. So I really uh, respect that. But I think you've adapted a cultural style that works pretty much wherever you wherever you find yourself, whether it be academically, uh, medically, or or on a day to day basis. That's incredible. Exactly, exactly. Well, look, Jonathan, I guess look, you've given us a very kind of detailed uh, backstory there of yeah how you got into um, the space that you're in, the international travel. Um, but look, how uh, over the past. Yeah, 18 months, a lot has, has changed. Um, give us a quick snapshot of how things are going for you, for your the businesses that you're involved in, how you've been impacted by COVID. Um, because I think for anyone perhaps in the digital health space, um, it's almost been, you know, it's almost been a catalyst for um, further development. But talk us through it from a man on the ground in the thick of things, how's it been? It's been incredible. Um, well, the COVID happened and I remember that I was doing um, already tele-rehabilitation. Um, so I was implementing tele-rehabilitation at some places in, in, uh, in the US and, um, and Europe and trying to get into Latin America as well when um when a covid happened and um and at the beginning it was of course you know chaotic and we didn't really know what was going to happen but we knew and i will i knew this um when when it started and and we had to do social distancing and quarantine i remember i went but then i was in a, in a company from the netherlands called lodi i went to the ceo and i told him listen 
this is a big, big opportunity to implement digital health, to go remote because people need this. People need to do these things in, at social distance. We have to do something about this. So when, when it started to develop and run, unravel in the United States and in Italy and Spain, we saw that there was a big necessity because hospitals were shutting down. They were only attending to uh, people with COVID. Then the amounts of doctors, you know, let's call it the doctor capital of the uh, per hospital was going down because they were getting, they were getting infected. So they had to go on quarantine and then you had less doctors, less nurses, so less capacity. So everything else, you know, chronic management, ambulatory uh, consults, everything was put on pause. So this is what we call a public health emergency. Like all the resources go to the public health emergency, everything else gets out. And then eventually those things will become a, a huge problem as well. Um, so when, when that happened, systems had to fix it. As the months and weeks passed, they realized this is not going away. So we have to do something about it. So we saw, and I would say it was already by middle 2020, uh, insane uh, implementation of, of digital health regulatory uh, paths and, or regulations in many countries, especially in the European Union. You saw um, hospitals implementing their guidelines for digital health as fast as they could to put on telemedicine, uh, to integrate it to the systems, uh, to, to create the right path for telemedicine, because you can't do everything on telemedicine. So you have to know what you can do on telemedicine, what you can't do on telemedicine, um, and to implement remote patient monitoring, and they are still doing it. Uh, think about last week that the Netherlands just got their reimbursement code for re remote patient monitoring. So it's those things, you know, that are happening still right now. But this, this, this incredible booming on, on digital health, what it did, was also to expand to other uh, areas of the world where we thought that it would not come for the next 10 to 15 years, like Latin America. Latin America was pushed. And you know what happens when somebody pushes you against the strings, you either fight or you get defeated. The point is that you as a system can't get defeated because in your, in your hands are the lives of millions of people. So you have to fight. And that's what uh, Latin American countries did. And they implemented digital health even with their low resources. Um, in some countries, it has been tremendous success, like Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, they have done a tremendous job in mm -hmm. terms of video calling uh, with doctors and even remote patient monitoring. In other countries, there's many attempts and they are still trying to define and, and refine the way they do digital health, like Peru, Colombia, Brazil, but they will get to it. In other countries, it has been defensive to now, like in Mexico, where they don't really have a regulation yet, but they still are in some bubbles because Mexico is divided like states, like in the United States. In some of the states, they are implementing digital health. So the situation is, um, I would say, definitely a, a catalyst. Um, and for the people that work in digital health, like like me or, or you know, my, my colleagues in the digital health space, um, we have been asked a lot as well. And I think it was... At some point, we were really overwhelmed with work, um, especially the ones that were advising many companies at the same time. We saw that the need, deep needs of the companies to succeed and to implement fast, uh, maybe because they thought that it was going away after the COVID. Now, right. I, th I think that the pace is a little bit more stable because they realize that this is not going anywhere. And even with the COVID passes, this will continue to develop uh, to become a branch of medicine um or a branch of medicine services 
So now it's a little bit more calm, but at that moment it was really, really, every, everyone was just trying to go as fast. So I was the chief medical officer of a cardiac um, wearables device by, by then, um, already at the end of 2020. And um, I was working with, with them and I remember that every day we saw a different company coming up the, the, the spectrum of digital health in wearable techniques. So you saw, we, I was in Corsano and then you saw the BioBeat just came up and uh, Cardiac Sense came up and Aura and there's a hoop and there's this and that. And, and everyone was making wearables. Everyone was trying to find their niche. Um, they were, some of them were going through uh, sleep medicine or respiratory medicine. Other ones were really focused on cardiac. So it was, a, it was a race that now has, I think, stabilized a little bit. We see that the market is big enough. It is, this is like electronics, you know, you, you couldn't, Apple could never afford to deliver the world, you know? So we, there's always a need for other companies like Huawei and Samsung and LG. There's always a, a, a market when it becomes mature, there's many players. And I think that's what we are gonna see with the wearable uh, segment, for instance. So it's, it's being more calm. And in the part of telemedicine and um, software solutions, we also see that now the development is a little bit more stable, stabilized. Although uh, what we see now is that investors are more confident because now they realize, yes, this is going to happen. This is, this is going to stay. And there's nothing. Mm. If we think about digital therapeutics, we, we right now we're only seeing mental health, endocrinology, and maybe some sporadic digital therapeutics across other specialties. And in the chronology only in diabetes, because we've not really seen digital therapeutics in, in hypothyroidism or any other disease within endocrinology. So what, what I think here is that this is an ocean of opportunities because every specialty has hundreds, if not thousands of pathologies that have to be addressed in a different way. When we go to, to med school, the doctors, we always told by, the, by our um, professors, Patient has hypertension. So we're gonna treat him with this, 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 this medical uh, compound. So that's medication. But the patient has also, they need to eat hypocaloric uh, and, and uh, lower fat diet. And they also have to do exercise and they also have to stop smoking and they also have to do this, this and that. And those are the lifestyle complementary changes that have to happen in order for the patient to be, to be uh, let's say, to have maintenance in their, in their chronic disease treatment and to be uh, with no exacerbations. Mm -hmm. Now, digital therapeutics is focusing on those um, interventions of the lifestyle to make medical treatments um, more efficient and to help the patient to actually control their chronic disease. So it's gonna be different and it's gonna be different in every single specialty. It will use artificial intelligence. It will use wearables and data and it will be more precise and more individual than just saying stop eating fatty uh, foods or, or hypercaloric foods. No, your app might tell you, you cannot eat bread uh, at 7 a.m., but you, can, you might be able to eat bread at 1 p.m. And um, maybe you should eat a banana at 7 p.m., you know, uh, but don't add that coffee. That coffee is actually higher in your blood pressure, but you can drink the coffee maybe at 5 p.m. It's, so, it's going to be so rich that we're going to see a, a, a revolution of healthcare from the diagnostics it started and the, and the way we implement health to the treatment, which is now. Um, so interesting how all that works. I just can't, I can barely even get my head around it that it could be that 
detailed and you know with the you know mill timings etc it's crazy to think that that is all going to be phasing in I mean, and it's no wonder Jonathan that you've had a busy 18 months I know it was um it was difficult enough pinning you down to, to get you on to share your story today um but it must have been crazy over the last um 18 months I mean with is the the level of workload would you say that that has been one of your biggest challenges or have, have there been others I think the level of work has definitely been a, a challenge um I think that the pace, you know, of the, the, the deliverables had to be given in a, such a fast, a fast pace that, um, you know, the typical way that the, the corporate people work, <laughs> I don't want to really like uh, uh, criticize corporate, uh, the corporate ex- structures, but some companies are very slow, you know, uh, as big as you get, uh, the slower you get as well. Because many people take decisions and they have to be in sync. And um, when you have these bureaucratic systems, it's just it's so difficult to make people sync, synchronize for a decision. While startups and um, especially these digital health companies, they are all small to middle sized. It's easier to, to get it going. So the, the board of directors and the CEOs, they always want to have these fast because the decisions can take, be taken fast. So that means that we, the medical uh, advisors, we also have to give medical uh, advice in fast. So I think one of the challenges was reading all that amount of information and every day we're coming more and more publications and you have to stay uh, up to date. If you stop reading for a week, you're outdated. So um, that was a challenge. And then the other challenge that I think will happen and still is happening, it has happened, it happens and it will happen still is uh, adoption. And uh, that's also something that we as medical uh, advisors and the, the chief medical officer, the communicators, we have to make sure that we can leverage from the doctors and from the patients. How can we explain the technology to the doctors so that they really understand the potential and they can implement it in their practice? And then how can we explain the technology to the patients so they understand the impact in their healthcare um, so they comply? You know, those things are very important. Remember that we are in, a, in an era of patient centricity. It happened way before uh, the pandemic started. We were looking towards patient centricity. And that means that the patient is in the center of the medical service and, and, the, and the healthcare providing, and that the patient has a say and they have a decision. They are empowered. So we have to convince the patient about the technology. And, uh, and that has been a challenge as well um, in the, from the communication side. I know we had a, an interesting chat about all of that um, a few weeks back now, didn't we, Adam, with the, the team at Medvector talking about adoption, um, telemedicine, et cetera, and the, you know, people taking it on. And it's just about that, that awareness as you're touching on there, I, I think, Jonathan. I think you, there, are, there are so many strands to it that you've described there, Jonathan, across, across geographies, across technologies, but certainly across therapeutic areas. That's mm. really where the nuts and bolts of it are happening. And we all have experience of that in our day-to-day lives. And, and I think your, you know, your snapshot view of, of what the future might look like is, is quite an extraordinary view because you're really at the coalface. You're defining those processes and advising and coming up with immediate solutions. This is the point, isn't it? It's applying medical, medical advice, best medical advice to best medical technologies to bring patient outcomes as quickly as you possibly can when they're needed, because we're in a critical place, as you say. And right now with COVID and the adaptation of lifestyle since 
many people have been provided with the vaccine across the world it is now that next phase isn't it we're going into that next phase and that how the adoption then translates into into future senses it's a great perspective you provide there i mean it really is yeah and it, and it has so many um connotations i always say that it's there's a cultural ones as you said you know um every place in the world people have different cultures you have to understand that um let's call it uh, cross-cultural knowledge um and then there's language and then there is patient uh patient doctor relationships you know they have different natures in different medical systems um it's just you have to understand all those things if you want to implement digital health and that's why digital health can't be the same one everywhere in the world no there so, is no one size there is no one size is there that's that's clear yeah. and, and and i think you've spoken to that so brilliantly as, as well Definitely. It's not, I just, yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated about this subject and interested to see where it goes. So I think I'll no doubt myself be doing some uh, personal research on some of these things. I'll probably ask you chaps for a couple of ideas as to, to what to look at, because uh, there's normally so many articles out there at the moment. It's, it's where to look first. Um, but Jonathan, from, from your, your end, um, look, you're involved with advisory work and, and many businesses at present. Look, give us a quick overview of your plans for the future, what's next for the businesses, um, what's what's in store for us? I think you've touched on that already, but for the you know the world of, of life sciences and pharma, what's what are you seeing next, and what are you going to be up to next? So I'm going to be up to a lot of things. Um, as I said before, I love to educate as much as I love to implement. So I wouldn't like to be disattached of any of both. Um, as I said in in the beginning, I'm, I'm working with Medscape. Um, I work together with the Chief Medical Officer of Medscape, Hansa Bhargava, and um, we create strategies for um, a- online medical education. Um, so we're going to be having some great uh, content there coming up, and that's going to be uh, basically delivering medical innovation in education uh, talks uh, through a new series on Medscape, and um, uh, she's going to be the one that will introduce it, but I'm working on it, and I'm really happy about that. Uh, it's going to be revolutionary for what we have been knowing until now on medical education. I mean, someone has to put the first stone, right? And um, uh, there's a saying that Medscape has, and um, I think they are right in that. It's like they say, wherever the medicine, the future of medicine may go, Medscape will be there. And I think they are actually there before. And um, and I'm liking the, the work that I'm doing with them. So that's one thing that, ha- that has to happen in the medical education part. In the part of the business, I'm implementing, as I said, with different companies um, in a cons- as a consultant advisor way. Um, I tell them a little bit how to, to create and deliver functionalities of, uh, for digital health or how to implement it in the medical practice or just telling them green and, and, and red light uh, as, as in Lean Six Sigma what you have to keep and what you have to throw away, uh, you know, I think is very important. I'm just going to give you a quick example um, without telling any names. There's, um, there's a solution that I saw some time ago, and um, that is a solution that does, um, the, the phone can read an ECG from the camera of the phone. And um, I, was, I still wonder myself after I saw that solution, uh, and, and you, you read it from the camera and the AI will tell you what, what there is, arrhythmia, this and that. I was just telling myself, uh, I'm, a, I'm a cardiologist, you know, they are, they read ECG like if you read a paper. So if I just grab a paper right now and I have this paper, right? And I tell you, it says AirTag, right? 
Now, grab a phone and it will tell you that it says AirTag. Are you gonna get that app? I don't think so because no. you can already read AirTag. Yeah. So I think that's the same point with, uh, with solutions. Sometimes solutions are really amazing and sometimes solutions are, have to be defined and refined to who is going to be the one that uses it and why. And what I do for companies at the moment is exactly that. I, I am um, finding the, the way that their technology can be applied to medicine, but also sometimes technology has to be changed. And I tell them, this has to be changed. I would rather more fit into something else that actually would make sense to the doctor. Um, and I think there's a, there's a huge scene uh, of opportunity in what's happening right now. And my third and most important project is I am co-founder and the C chief executive officer of Lapsi Health. So we are actually a digital therapeutics company in the space of pediatric pulmonology. So we are treating uh, or aiming to treat pediatric asthma. And um, for that, we have created an interesting solution that is software-based um, acquiring data from wearables um, and then identification of asthmatic crisis mixed with a coaching te and technique uh, solution for children to be able to puff correctly. And uh, we are assessing a, a, a problem that it's not being talked about. You know, we talk about hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and diabetes all the time. Mm -hmm. But then we don't talk about asthma. And asthma is a problem. You know how big of a problem is when you when there are 2 million consults to the GP on asthmatic crisis in the United States per year, uh, when there's more than 36,000 hospitalizations a year, and when asthma is actually the cost of more than 10 million school days lost per year, then we realize this is a big problem. And, um, and the costs of, our, of, of it are tremendous. You know, we're talking about more than 20 billion US dollars only in the United States a year. So somebody has to assess it. And um, I've been speaking with a lot of pediatric pulmonologists in the past and they keep telling us, well, Jonathan, you know, this is a problem, but I, I, we don't see there's really much interest in the technology side or in the pharma side to actually do something about this. And um, of course, medication-wise, there's a lot of development, but we need to do something about adherence, something about technique. How can we do that? And, um, and that was the moment where, that we decided we're going to build this company up. And we are in the process now of, of uh, fundraising for our seed fund. And um, hopefully that will come very soon. And we're going to be seeing this uh, development happening as fast as we can, because, you know, we're all working at light speed. Fantastic. Sounds like exciting times. And then... Um... Sounds like you're only going to be getting busier, Jonathan, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> he, he hasn't even mentioned the fact that he's got a young family as well. I mean, this guy literally doesn't sleep. The, the times that Jonathan and I connect, I mean, I don't know where you get your energy from, Jonathan. You're extraordinary. Um, I hope you do get some quality sleep when you do sleep, because clearly you, you've got an AI um, algorithm that suggests when the best time to sleep is and how long you need to sleep for. <laughs> 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 that's, I, I got a, I got an AI, but that's my own head, and it says drink coffee. That's what it says. <laughs> Fantastic, that's superb. Well, look, Jonathan, we've come to the, the point of the show where we, we we wrap up, but before we let you go, we've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. Um, so look, I'll kick off. Um, there's five of them. The first will come from myself, uh, and that is that. What is the, the number one piece of advice that you'd perhaps give to your younger self? Um, back when you were perhaps in, in Peru? When I was in, uh, practicing as a doctor or when I was studying in university? 
just where your younger self in, in general, you, your call. Okay. Um, I would give myself an advice when I was applying to university. I would tell myself, don't worry. It's going to be fine. I like it. We've heard that one quite a few times, haven't we, Adam? Don't overthink don't, it. Exactly. Yeah, don't Absolutely. Overthink. Don't, don't think too big. And it sounds like you might have quite a lot of books on your bookshelf and certainly on your bedside table, but I'm wondering what you're reading right now, because I know our listeners would be very keen to understand what's going on in, in your mind and, and what you're reading on your bedside table, if you have any time before you fall asleep. <laughs> uh, I, so, okay, so I, <laughs> this is really funny. So I, I'm, I'm actually reading a lot of academic uh, uh, papers at the moment, so I don't really want to read more than that. Um, I have been reading many interesting books. I, um, I loved a book called Siddhartha, which is, um, which is a really beautiful book about the journey of, uh, of um, Buddha from the moment that he was uh, young until the moment that he uh, ascended and um, uh, got uh, you know, enlightened. So I, I love that book. Um, but I basically read a lot of academic stuff. And um, in my free time, I choose to watch the brain, the most brainless TV possible. <laughs> what's, what's, on I, I watch even, what's on the watch list? What's on the watch list even, then? Oh my gosh, I would even watch like reality television, honestly. It's just because th you need to get disattached of all this uh, constant reading, you know? So let's just like uh, put it a little bit aside. Or, and of course, I'm, I'm, I'm watching a lot of Disney because of my kids, like a lot of it. I think I watch like, twice a week at least one of the frozen movies so i know all the songs good stuff well, we won't ask you to, to to sing any of those or what your preferred one <laughs> is we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the, to the next question which is more about uh growth look you've been involved with uh, a lot of companies sounds like the next 18 months as you're building up lapsy and uh things there's going to be some more growth but look what are the three top qualities that you value most when building uh teams within your own businesses Yes, so um, multidisciplinary teams are super important for a company. So I, um, I have to look for people that know a lot, that know way more than I do in all of the, the places where I have no experience. So um, I love people. That I, I usually build, build a team and I look for a really good commercial person. I, I look for a very, very academic person and I look for a deep technologist. Um, I think those are key people because uh, me as, as a chief executive or, or as an advisor, um, I am limited of course. And there, uh, so when I really build up a team, I try to build up a team with people that really know more than me and that can really help me out uh, to have this you know, collective growth. Um, I think that's really important. Another uh, um, big characteristic of building up a team is building a team with people that you really click with. Um, I think it's not only about professional part. You know, it, yes, we are all professionals and we all know a lot of things and uh, we have a, a repertoire and, and, and this big CV of like 50 pages. But more than that, we also should be able to have a coffee and have a conversation. And um, I think it's important because otherwise you can have all that repertoire, but you can't communicate with each other. You're not really going to be able to be successful or, or fruitful. Um, and the third part is I uh, tend to look for... Um, variety in a team um i um i like ethnical variety i like gender variety i like um multiculturalism and multi-languages i think it's very very nice to have 
people of all different backgrounds because they come with a huge package of other things, other experiences and other things that they can implement in the work that you have never lived before. So uh, for that reason, I, I love to just have people that are so different um, so we can all learn from each other. I like it. I like it. Awesome. It's really, it's really inspiring just to, just to hear the way that your brain thinks, Jonathan, on so many different levels. You've shared so much, but I'm just curious. I mean, it sounds like you're very heavily involved with your family outside of work. Is there anything else that you particularly enjoy doing when you're, when you're not working or not, not watching Frozen? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we go swimming with my daughters. They, uh, my, my wife, she, she's a former synchronized swimmer from the Dutch team. Wow. Uh, big professional athlete and um, also a PhD and a doctor, you know. So um, the, the kids, we, we started with them with their swimming lessons when they were three months old. And um, we go to this program that's actually coming from the UK. It's called the Water Babies. So I would oh, recommend I know. it. I, I know about Water Babies, yeah. My, my kids I would recommend it. Well. Yes, and I would recommend it. And I'm here. I'm, I'm not being sponsored by Water Babies. Please listen, <laughs> I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> but I have to say, I would definitely recommend it because it, it's proven by research that um, swimming and aquatic sports help kids develop faster and better. And I can see it in my kids. They are so spot on. You know, my daughter is like speaking already three languages. Um, wow. And it's, I think it comes a little bit from that experience. And they swim amazing. She's two, two years and 10 months. We went to this vacation uh, um, and, and she just got into the pool and she was trying to swim on her own. You throw her in the pool and she comes up by herself. It's incredible. Did so, you do that thing? Did you do the first, the first swim where you push them under the water and then they just come of up course. and they do that classic Nirvana picture? Um, and they do. I know. And it's they incredible. Do. Yes. And, they, and they hold their breath and they just have no fear. They do, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Fantastic. And look, to, to wrap us up for, for the show, uh, Jonathan, that we've spoke about um, your life, business, but look, what would you say is your number one golden rule for life and business? I would say uh, stay always honest. I think that's really, to me, that's the most important uh, rule of all. Um, to be honorable. When you do business, uh, it's not about it's not all about the money it's not all about that 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 level of success uh, it's also about the relationships and it's also about friendship it's also about impacting lives and impacting uh, um, people so when when you're in this level of business you can easily get uh, corrupted or you can easily get um, ambitious but just remember and Always, and I would say that to all the people that are young that are listening to this uh, as well, always remain honest, always, and, um, and always tell the truth. And the truth is going gonna, is gonna to be very, very powerful in your career. Definitely. No, look, that's one that I, I certainly share myself. Um, look, I just want to thank you again for giving up some of your time to, to jump on here, share your experiences, share your journey. It's been a pleasure having him on, hasn't uh, it, Adam? absolutely wonderful honestly jonathan really fabulous thank you so much for taking the time we really appreciate it well thank jonathan, you guys uh, for, for the interview well you're welcome thanks again for coming on the huxley morton podcast you have a fantastic day your end you too all right bye cheers bye. guys